Hello folks, welcome to Infinity Foundation's Kurukshetra podcast. I'm your host Karishma Himmatsinghani. In today's podcast, you will get to hear Sri Rajiv Malhotra's dialogue with Major General G.D. Bakshi, a retired army officer from Indian Army. So let's listen to this very interesting conversation. Namaste. Uh, I'm delighted to have a, an amazing guest today, General Bakshi in Delhi. Uh, he's a well-known person on Indian TV, but for many of the viewers internationally, I just want to tell you that he's had a distinguished career with the armed forces and now a different kind of career as a public intellectual and public spokesman defending the country and its values in a very strong, strong voice. Delighted to have you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me over. Yeah. So, uh, this is part of a series I'm doing called Dialogue with the Masters. So, what I do is I pick the top people in different fields. So, I'm delighted to have you uh, uh, as one of our leaders, the thought leaders in terms of uh, security, not only in terms of physical security, but intellectual security, cultural security and so forth. So, I wanted to find out from you, what is your overall assessment of the safety or, or, or risks of this country vis-a-vis uh, Pakistan, vis-a-vis China, vis-a-vis internal problems? Uh, firstly, uh, I think I'll start with the internal dimension first. Okay. You know, large countries like the Soviet Union, erstwhile now Russia, China, India, these are, you know, like huge nuclei. They tend to be entropic. Right. And we have invariably found that these large empires have broken up from internal stressors much more than they have, you know, uh, gone down to external aggression. Uh, For example, the Soviet Union survived the invasion of Nazi Germany, beat them back from the gates of Moscow to Berlin and destroyed Nazi Germany virtually single-handed. They lost 25 million people, but they didn't give up, they didn't break up. The same Soviet Union collapsed in 1990 without a single shot being fired from within. You know, the same colossus of China was on the brink of collapse in Tiananmen uh, Tiananmen Square when when the crowds had just come out in their hundreds and thousands. So, you know, just like heavier nuclei tend to be entropic, these large states, these macro states, you know, tend to be brittle from within. And the greater danger that they have to look out for is the kind of danger that you have been warning of in this magnum opus of yours, which I keep as a reference, standard reference work, Breaking India. Breaking India, yes. You see, the fact is that uh, it is, uh, India has been, uh, you know, I would say twice blessed in terms of security threats. No other country has had its national identity so comprehensively destroyed as this nation state. Yes. Uh, The simple fact is we had almost a thousand years of Muslim invasions. I mean, and that did not do any good for national cohesion, morale, etc. Except that in the reign of Akbar, I would say that he turned secular. And that's how he built the Mughal Empire. But that same Mughal Empire, when Aurangzeb came and became tyrannical, I mean, there were revolts and that Mughal Empire had, uh, you know, collapsed and into this vacuum came the British. And the British, after the 1857 revolt, set about to comprehensively destroy the idea of India. Destroy. 
and I mean it with a capital D, that destruction. You know, it was Sir John Risley who first picked on the caste fault lines. Right, right. 1872, he holds the first caste-based census and, and he tells us that uh, as long as there is caste, there will be no India. Right. Every single collectorate in India, you know, had to have district gazetteers where you had just like on like the Aadhaar cards today, you had to list your caste, your gotra, your sub-caste and it was almost like caste getting a second or a third, you know, uh, dose of life because of the British intervention. Sure. And uh, not only did they identify the caste fault lines, then they went on to the religious fault line. They gave separate electorates to the Muslims then to the Sikhs, then to the Christians. And each of these communities, you know, we've had breakaway moments after partition, after independence. You know, these comprehensive fault lines... And these things are worse, are getting worse by the day, in some sense. Because you have Northeast insurrection, you have... And the whole Dalit movement in the South, the Christianization of India, and also a lot of Islamization. Uh, we don't talk much about it, but that's a problem. And the foreign nexuses are funding and exacerbating this. And then the in, uh, intellectuals in India themselves are sepoys. Many of the intellectuals are themselves making the idea of India broken up into states and so on, kind of a fashionable thing to do. How wonderful. You see, the British Empire was built by our sepoys. Right. Paid two and a half rupees per month. You know, yeah. and they fought for the British Empire. They colonized the whole of India, and the spread of the British Empire was almost analogous to the spread of the Mauryan Empire yes. from the east. You know, it came and occupied the west. And who were the foot soldiers? Indians. Right. They were at any given time forty thousand British soldiers in India, and there were something like hundred and twenty thousand, three hundred thousand, and at the time of World War One, one point three Indian in uniform. In the Second World War, we had 2.5 million Indian soldiers in uniform, the largest all-volunteer army in the world, recruited without conscription. They built the British Empire. The British Empire is being psychologically sustained because I do believe that before the British left, they left behind an Anglophile elite who would be beholden to them for the next decades. Many of the media are owned by these people. The media are owned by these people. It is uh, Britishers like William Darlimple who decide what is literature, what is good literature, runs all the literary festivals. He runs and, all and, the and, literary festivals. And I'm festivals. blacklisted because I pointed out to him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that he, makes two of us. <laughs> he, his, his ancestors were in the East India Company. I, I mean, his whole articles on, you know, his whole... Uh, and how he's powerful, so powerful that he decides through Indians who do the dirty work. The, the actual uh, management is done by... The foot soldiers are your so-called leftist liberals. Yes. The bastions of that, this seditious behavior, you know, is focused on the JNU that we have in New Delhi. And then there's Ashoka University in there Gurgaon. There is Ashoka University many in others Gurgaon. Like there is the Jadapur University in Kolkata. There is the Hyderabad University from where Verumala and the others, uh, you know, have been given traction and they have their allies in the media, in the, especially in the print and the electronic media sections of it, they have their allies and uh, it is a comprehensive movement. I just like to remind people, you know, because people tend to look at more overt threats. In yes. looking at more overt threats, they forget what is far more dangerous in Syria, you know, where, where the problem started. In the universities of Damascus and Aleppo. Mm. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, right, right. The right. University of JNU, the University of And Jarosu. this so called Arab Spring, which was supposed to be in freedom, got out of hand. 
got out of hand. I think it was designed to disintegrate yes, yes. all the major Arab powers. And which were the most secular and liberal and possibly modernist, the regimes of uh, not liberal but at least secular and modernist. Iran, Hussein was very much so. He was Iraq, in, yeah. Syria, yeah. Uh, Libya. Right. These were at least modernist in outlook. They right. they were building cities. They were yes. wearing Western dresses, etc. These are the regimes targeted for destabilization via the Arab Spring. Right. The Arab Spring is generated by the new technology of you know messaging. Texting on the mass, creating a flash dance mob, and you create use that to create mobs. The same mobs were created here in New Delhi. Right, right. And you see, before the problem started in JNK this year, it had started. The first slogans for Buranwani had been shouted in the University of Jawaharlal Nehru, named after Jawaharlal Nehru in New Delhi. My boys who were fighting in JNK, they were so shocked, they rang me up from there and said, Sir, what the hell is going on? We thought we had heard these slogans in the border states. Now they are in Delhi, in your universities. That is the danger. I think precisely what you had warned eight years ago in breaking India. I mean, that is coming to pass. And but it you was, see, it was I. I mean, uh, frankly, in the intelligence community, security community in India, we thought this book was prophetic. Prophetic. So why hasn't something been done to close down this, to clamp this? I mean, there'll be complaints about freedom of speech. People will talk about that, and they'll say it's saffronization, and you're denying them their human rights and so on. But enough is enough. At some point, even Britain, even United States would clamp down on people. Any free society has to first look after its own security. The American ambassador, Varma Sahib, yes. in India, he has Indian genes. Yes. I'm afraid he does not have an Indian passport. Yeah. <laughs> and when this JNU problem took place, he went on television to say, you know, we must protect free speech. I would at that stage, I had asked him on television and I'd like to address that question to him again, possibly through you. Tell me one American university which, under the banner of free speech, has hailed the martyrdom of Osama bin Laden. Right. If you can that's right. put it in so that, know, that's, inverted a, that's commas. exactly how it should be. That's you know, a good question. You know, tell me one American university where they have held a memorial service for Atta Muhammad and the other bombers of 9-11. Right. Tell me one university where there has been a protest against the extrajudicial killing of Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. Did the American transport a court there? They transported the seals who went and shot him. And when his third or fourth wife came in between, they shot her in the foot. Was there any outcry on human rights? Tell me one American university where you can ask for the secession of Alaska or Texas today. Right. And if you don't end up in Guantanamo Bay <laughs> faster than you can say Jack Robinson, right. well, I'll, I'll shave my moustache off. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it can't be one yardstick for one democracy Correct. And, an, and an absolutely different yardstick for another democracy. See, this business of postmodernism has been exported. This whole idea of postmodernism, doing away with nation states, uh, it's flat world, you know, no borders. The point is, this is not applied to those countries. They do not live by that standard. They've exported it. And Indians with inferiority complex, I must say, lot of Indians were in this intellectual kind of fashion, have deep inferiority complex. They are really ashamed of who they are. And so they latch on to this idea because they think they'll be picked up and turned into some you know, icon for in being Indian. So, so there's a market, there's a job market, there's an economy of such left-wing type pseudo-intellectuals, pseudo-liberals to go and build big careers. 
this is this is a problem it was started by ford foundation and many others okay. uh, to recruit such people make ngos and get into the hinterland hinterlands and make trouble today it's the elite american think tanks the carnegie india the uh, the brookings india and all these kind of things they have decided that now uh, hindu type intellectuals or intellectuals from industrial families and intellectuals from you know government type of top officials their kids their kids should be recruited and uh, kind of uh, you know m manipulated intellectually or in let's just say in influenced intellectually to become the carriers of the american values american ideological values so this uh, it, we don't have our think tanks or think tanks of similar quality or think tanks with similar pay grades and similar class and clout so w what about that this war is becoming more sophisticated this intellectual psychological war is becoming more sophisticated because now you are finding very uh, highly educated people indians from ivy leagues and so on coming back and and joining this kind of a think tank machinery uh, you know the problem as you very rightly identified rajiv is that the british conquered india with an army of sepoys very low paid sepoys and now the intellectual conquest or the sub psychological subjugation of this country you know a deeply rooted inferiority complex injected or enforced in the colonial era tends to persist today 70 years after independence through an army of sepoys intellectual sepoys yes, yes. recruited paid you know featured yes. by the west right. and for recognition in the west you know the you play to those tunes right. your history is still the history that the colonial regime left you have not dared it is sacrilege to change a word of what the british said right you see it is sacrilege to try and talk of a new nationalism right the pity is that we have let ourselves be absolutely uh, you know guided by the nose right so to speak by an army of pseudo intellectuals the romilla thapars of this world right you know the rajmohan gandhis of this world right, right. who were patronized by the indian state the nehruvian indian state right who were funded by the nehruvian indian state court historians who twisted history the But history of the you see it struggle. suited it suited the vote bank politics of the congress that's right to keep people divided that's to right. keep to to create sub nationalist histories divisive histories to teach people that you are you are been exploited by the rest of the indians you are the victim so to create many uprisings they thought they can manage it and control it and not let it get out of hand not realizing that when you create such a thing it will get out of hand So so this is a product of the subaltern movement the whole intellectual movement to build history from below to build revolting histories and to sort of try to subvert the nation subverting the nation became fashionable in departments of history social sciences and so on uh, let me also give you just another twist to it possibly that has not been recorded earlier so much you know after the second world war the americans the occupying forces made sure that the german society the japanese society were demilitarized pacified and turned into absolute wimps from what they were given huge guilt complexes india had an army of 2.5 million men and frankly we won the war for the british you know towards the end of the war the british generals wanted indian divisions under them i mean they cost less they fought much better they fought much better you know and the fact of the matter is before the british well left they neutralized 
this militaris this rising militarism that was coming up in india a strong india they made sure that they left behind a wimp government which said we have attained freedom which falsely claimed that they had attained freedom only by the soft power of non violence and ahimsa and satyagraha and what have you whereas the fact of the matter is had it not been for bose and the ina the ina of subhachandra bose had 60000 soldiers out of them 26000 died do you call that a non violent struggle yet your history books you know in bipin chandra's magnum opus on india's freedom struggle which is about 600 pages plus guess how many other pages devoted to the ina and subhachandra bose one and a half one and a half this is the distortion that you started with you created a pacific regime those 2.5 million men you demobilized you left india with an army of 300000 and then you left india with a mindset where when uh, general sir roy butcher the first british chief of the indian army when he walked up to pandit nehru with plans for the expansion and modernization of the indian armed forces or the indian army at least nehru said general we don't need an army mm-hmm. we only need the police and the expression of shock on the general the british general's face when he reeled out of that office was something which is uh, you know which is priceless yeah it seems that nehru will eventually come down in history as some, somebody who really destroyed our country somebody we keep naming things after him with great pride you see look let me give you another uh, insight from the constitutional point of view what is the indian constitution today it is a rehash of the 1935 government of india act right the whole act has been taken lock stock and barrel what are the opening lines of this you know what did the british base their empire on on the concept of imperial justice they said india is such a conglomeration of fighting races ethnicities that it needs an external power to rule you know only an external power can dispense justice between the warring communities hence came the concept of imperial justice you know what is the indian constitution the preamble we the people of india having you know blah 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 resolved to give ourselves justice how is justice the first not liberty not equality not other facets of you know democratic dispensations all over the world how is justice the concept of imperial justice has been made into the concept of nehruvian that kind of a justice an anglophile regime which is separate from the warring communities of india well about you know i mean it's anglicized right, right right it is anglicized it is only fit to rule right and therefore you have the british queen replaced by another dynasty right and now you have an italian you had till recently an italian queen right an italian queen mother right so you have replaced one dynasty with another right you know a white a white only a white can rule india yeah if, can you uh, accept that nonsense if uh, if and if that white lady was a lady of great learning and consequence i would have you know said yes possibly she is a great economist or philosopher or what have you i'm very sorry the academic credentials of that lady were nothing to talk home about i think it's a white complex if rajiv gandhi had married somebody in africa suppose he married a would person, she have been the prime minister then, then then they would have not respected her the same way it's the it's the deep inferiority complex of our people still looking up to the angres and the, as a sort of a superior person that's our our problem you see that precisely he says that the victims of the colonial you know dispensation so internal internalized their their subjugation their sense of inferiority and i think the worst thing that the british did before they left was to instill in the indian intellectual elite 
a deep rooted sense of insecurity and inferiority which i'm very sorry to state 70 years after independence still reigns supreme sure, we still send our children to english speaking schools yeah and so called convents right you see and you see in this kind of a broken mind broken psychological mind with inferiority complex and weakness can easily be turned against each other and easily be turned uh, that your nation is the culprit your culture is the culprit your vedic civilization is the culprit and this has become fact brahmanical you know uh, domination i just want to raise one simple question brahmanical you know domineering for 1000 years who ruled india hmm. the muslims right and you think they were they were very partial to the brahmins right. the primary target of conversions of you know oppression etc were these intellectual elite right these are people who have suffered for the last 1000 years right. and now today they are being painted as you know because yes. they have been sensed as this is the uh, possibly the intellectual segment that has uh, held the semblance of a civilizational order together right so they look at the way they are targeted right, right you know subaltern histories and other histories and brahmanical oppression and this thing i ask you 1000 years were the brahmins ruling were the brahmins ruling this country it yeah. were they were the primary targets of persecution of victimization of of my own people have suffered untold you know tortures bhai martidas baba paraga bhai martidas incidentally was sawed in half sawed in half his satidas and his other brother they were burned to death and one was boiled to death by the moguls and they were brahmins well so you this is the kind of brahmin elitism yes, that you yes, are yes. talking of you know narrative I mean, we, we, we've suffered more than this atrocity of isis actually the muslim atrocities in india are far worse than what isis is doing because isis they are run for a few few years and they have affected maybe a few tens of thousands of people but we've suffered millions of people millions. for hundreds of years you see the jewish holocaust is nothing compared to fails into insignificance right. be, you know before what was done in india by the invaders that wave after wave of invaders wave after wave of oppression right. and today it is supposed to be you know politically incorrect to talk of that right right It but is politically incorrect we have given ourselves a political dispensation where you are supposed to glorify the conqueror the invader the marauder the looter the rapist and now there is this book by one of sheldon pollock students uh, an a, a westerner on aurangzeb glorifying yes. decent one and she writes for the hindu and she's invited to all the lit fest so it's like really we are having we have a complex of self hatred we really are interested in destroying ourselves almost uh, we have a death wish death wish you see let me let me put it this way carbon dating takes your civilization back to 7000 years at least some of the ruins in dwarka and undersea have been dated back to 7000 years yes. so has mehragarh been dated back and, to 7000 years and rathigadi in haryana and rathigadi in haryana so the point is in these 7000 years how often were you united politically 300 years of the mogul empire followed by the songa empire you know only if you combine the right. two empires right. you get 300 years 300 years or so of the mogul empire right and another 250 to 300 years of the british empire of which we are the successor entity that means only for 900 years out of 7000 years you been united for the rest you have been a squabbling lot of kingdoms and you know fiefdoms and republics 
Ganatantras and Ganarajyas and Vaishali and the others fighting for one courtesan or the other courtesan. I mean, so the the 900 years of some semblance of unity, political unity, uh, along with uh, versus thousands of years of uh, no single political unity, but. Beneath the political unity, there has been a civilizational continuity, a civilizational, a sense of, you know, after all, Adi Shankara goes to all the corners because he sees this is my Bharat. After all, our Itihas talks about, you know, from the north to the south, that whole land of Ramayana. So in the imagination of the mind of the people, in their education, in the Itihas, in the Shastras, and the person from the south, southernmost tip goes to Ganga for the dip and the and the kumbh mela attracts people from all over the country so th- this sense of unity has been not a kind of a political state type of unity but a different kind of unity and my concern is that now that is the one that they are attacking to break it absolutely i think you hit the nail on the head india is a weak state but a strong society yes and that strong society is because of the deep cultural continuity Yes. Amazing cultural continuity. Yes. No other civilization can boast of such a you know span of cultural continuity as the Indian, not the Chinese. Right. Not the Chinese, not the Egyptian, not right. the Greek. Right. All those civilizations are history. Yes. Those who build the pyramids, where are they today? Right. What is the cultural continuity between Egypt today and the Egypt of two to three thousand years ago? And yet when you go to the ruins of the Indus Valley Civilization, which I would like to re-term as the Saraswati Valley Civilization, right. because 60% of the sites and settlements were not along the Indus coast. Right. They were along the Saraswati River coast. Right, right. And so that Sindhu and Hindu, that entire construct imposed by the Westerners is a fallacy. But the fact of the matter is we have, if you see the ruins of the Saraswati stroke in the civilization, there are dolls with bindis. The, you know, our girls still yes, today yes, put yes, on bindis. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the kind of necklaces, the kind of carts, you know, the proto-Shiva, Pashupati, right. Right. is on the seals of the Indus Valley civilization 5,000 years ago. He is worshipped today yes. in the yogic asana, in the yogic posture. You know, there's the female goddess, the Shakti is there in the Indus Valley civilization. She is there today. There is an amazing cultural continuity. And if the British, so in, in, in terms of a civilizational state, there is nothing to hold a candle to this civilization. And the pity is, the danger is, when you ask me what is the greatest danger to India, it is this. It is this cultural construct that is under assault. It is this cultural construct which has withstood 7,000 years of entropy which is under assault. Now, but we do need to also address the external threat. We cannot trivialize it. I mean, we do need a very strong army. We need a very, very strong army. I've lived in the United States for a long time and I, I must say that I gained a huge respect for military and it's important in nation building after, because I lived there and I saw the amount of respect being given by U.S. corporates by U.S. government and the U.S. society to their armed forces. I don't see the same intensity of you know, patriotism here as far as respect for the armed forces is concerned as I saw in the United States. It's a, it, it's a, very, it's a big deal, you know, when, when their soldiers go out to war, they come back the way they're greeted, uh, when there are, there are national parades, there are the, the, the Indian army 
uh, you know, is still looked at uh, as something very specialized, particular thing they are doing. But role in nation building is, I think, not adequately appreciated. So would you like to comment on that as a military person yourself? Once again, you've touched a very raw nerve <laughs> in the Indian military. America is a democracy. 70% of their presidents have been former military men. Yes. Yes. Let me just put it bluntly. Right. 70% Americans have been, does that make it less of a democracy? Yes. How is it that this country, in this country, the ethic of self-sacrifice, it is the soldier alone who lays his life down on the line, right. who suffers wounds, torture, death, and In the United States, it's a matter of great pride for a candidate to say, I served in the army. And, I mean, and, it's, it's a huge pride. And, and then people really look at it. And in India, by sheer contrast, Tell me how many of the thousands of politicians has ever served in the military or sent his son or his daughter to the military? Not one. Not one. The British Queen has two sons. One is in the Royal Air Force. The other is in the uh, British Army. It's and these pride. boys and these boys have not been ADCs to the Queen. Right. They are not been aides de camp to the Queen. They have served by volunteering in Iraq and Afghanistan. And every battlefield that there is, they go. So they lead by example. Right. You see, and the nation looks up to the sacrifice of the armed forces in this country. And that's why I said the narrative of state, the Nehruvian narrative of state constructed was one to justify your political survival against the bogey of Subhash Chandra Bose and his INA, which actually got India free. Right. Because you see, let me let me put a very a little known fact across. The key decision maker for Indian independence was uh, 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 Lord Clement Attlee, the first, the British Prime Minister in 1947. 1955 he comes to India and he is the guest of the Governor of West Bengal, Justice P.V. Chakrabarti. They have a long conversation. He asks him, the 1942 Quit India movement of the Congress had failed dismally. You had put every single Indian prisoner behind the bars. Right? And it had all died out without a whimper. Why then did you leave in such a tearing hurry after you won the Second World War in 45? Atlee said, the key decision maker who signed the Independence of India Act said three words. Subhash Chandra Bose, Indian National Army. When he raised an eyebrow, he clarified that the INA trials that we held, you know, they may have lost the wars right. of in, in Kohima and Imphal, but the INA trials that we, you know, that we held, they were in February 1946, very few people know, mass revolts in the Royal Indian Navy, 20,000 sailors on 80 ships, pulled down the Union Jack, threw their British officers into the sea, marched the streets of Karachi and Mumbai with portraits of Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose. That is the reality. What is the reflection in the history? It was only Dedi Hame Ajadi Bina Khadag Bina Dhal. We got it without firing a shot. We got it without. I'm sorry. When 60,000 men, 26,000 die, you call that a non violent struggle? You know, the entire Indian army after independence has just about had 25,000 casualties. 26,000 Indians died. You have blotted their name out to give a construct of a, of a pacific state of a state based on ahimsa, non-violence, non-alignment, apostle of peace, buddhahood in the world. You've castrated your military, you've castrated your this thing and we got the disaster of 1962. Fortunately, we learned a lesson. Fortunately, we learned a lesson. So, in 62, the Chinese came 40 kilometers and exactly. then they withdrew. 
they i mean they withdrew as a kind of a slap in our face yeah. that we can come and do it anytime yeah. so but they're still doing it ha things changed after 62 the next leader that you had was a diminutive man called lal bahadur shastri yes. and he proved to be a far tougher not i mean they 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 expanded the indian armed forces they expanded and modernized the military all that had not been done in the years of the nehru dispensation i mean they tried to catch up rapidly pakistan saw that happening it tried to strike before we could fully modernize by 71 we had fully modernized and expanded the armed forces to the size that is required and you saw the results and in mrs indira gandhi we had a ruthless practitioner of real politics the kautilyan tradition had been reborn manaksha of course did and we pc lal admiral nanda of the navy who struck karachi home port of the pakistani navy sank ship ships six ships and put the karachi harbor on fire so that it burned for a week you couldn't see the sun in karachi i mean that was the kind of a thing comprehensive defeat we broke pakistan in two in 1971 broke pakistan in two right and 93000 prisoners of war never has there been such a mass surrender yeah, yeah, after khan. the second world war yaya khan of course was a broken wreck by that time and general amir akbar abdullah khan niazi हिलाल जुर्रत सितारा है पाकिस्तान वॉज आई हैव सीन हिम एज अ बंडल ऑफ नर्व वीपिंग लाइक अ चाइल्ड एंड नाइन्टी थ्री थाउजेंड ऑफ दर्स वर्ग कैटल ट्रेन गुड्स ट्रेन एंड बींग कार्टेड अवे टू इंडिया आई मीन दिस इज अविलाइजेशनल यू टर्न दिस इज अविलाइजेशनल यू टर्न दी ओनली प्रॉब्लम एंड दैट इज वॉट आई कीप वॉर्निंग अगेंस्ट इज एंड थैंक गॉड फॉर ट्वेंटी फोर्टीन बिकॉज वेन द कांग्रेस इन द सेकेंड अवतार went back with a vengeance to nehruvian socialism went back with a vengeance to nehruvian pacifism because after the nuclearization of south asia they said now war is just not a possibility and pakistan can do all the killing terrorist killing it wants in india and incidentally let me just give you some facts and figures pakistan started when it, when it found it couldn't win any straight head on war with us it started the war of a thousand cuts they said it is worked against the soviet union it can work against india so in punjab they started interfering first 20 in 10 years we suffered 21000 indian skilled soldiers policemen civilians we were able to contain that problem they started in jnk 45000 indian skilled till date 45000 indian citizens 1993 they spread that war to the whole of india to the whole of india and we have had another 15000 indian kills so 21000 45000 15000 indians so, have been so, killed in this proxy war so we should break them up again and separate baluchistan that is the precise point you see they 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 in the collective unconscious of the indian people there is the lord star of the mahabharat apocalyptic wars have always decided the fate of this continent subcontinent rather you see and uh, we had the mahabharatan war before that in the vedas you have the dasarajan war and those wars are remembered to this day so to tell us that we are a pacific blinkin soft power oriented people only concerned with ahimsa and non violence is to belie the truth of indian history right the dasarajan war the mahabharat war the battles of panipat which unfortunately you fought on your own territory and therefore you lost them instead of fighting forward so with that the change has come with bangladesh bangladesh war another apocalyptic war changed the map of south asia 
Fortunately, the pacific regime that had come in of the Congress, they were not stepping across the line of control. They were not stepping across the border to retaliate. They said, your only option is to grin and bear it. Your only option is to turn the other cheek. The only option is to uh, turn the other cheek and therefore, and therefore, we did nothing for the last 30 years. It's now in 2016 that you have hit back across the line of control at the tactical level with surgical strike, with fire assaults, which will now be the norm. If you can cross the border, so can we. It's no Lakshman Rekha. Exactly. It won't exist anymore. And number two, from the ramparts of the Red Fort, the Prime Minister said, he spoke about the people and the suffering of the people of Baluchistan, right. Gilgit Baltistan, the people of Sindh, the Mahajirs of Sindh, the Sindhis of Sindh, the people of Syrikia region. I mean, these are all the nationalities in Pakistan which have been oppressed by the Punjabi Muslim minority, right. which has swayed. And the very construct of Pakistan, which was created to see that India would not emerge as a strong state, would not emerge as a strong state, would be kept in check, would be a bridgehead for the destabilization of India forever and ever and ever. I think it's about time that we repeated Bangladesh. So, is the Trump presidency an opportunity because he has his own designs against the whole clash with Islam and so on? And I think he's looking for allies. He's looking for Putin as an ally. Is it an opportunity for strong Indian initiative to put some ideas on the table, educate this new government because they're not experts in geopolitics. They have an ideology. They want to fight and hit back, but they don't know the details. Because I think the freedom of Balochistan would be very strategic for the United States because it would make uh, Afghanistan no longer landlocked, no longer dependent on Pakistan for supplying to Afghanistan. It would make it accessible to the ocean. And they, to win Afghanistan is very strategic because they don't want a return of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, because that's a very uh, dangerous thing for them. So we could con probably convince them that this is a very strategic thing you should be investing in. And there may be other countries, Israel, uh, Russia, who may want to join because a free Baluchistan would give access from the sea to all the Central Asian countries. Uh, may, uh, uh, you know, like I said, the Nehruvian dispensation had destroyed the culture of military thinking in this nation state. Thank God for his successors that revived it. Now, let me tell you, uh, we don't think in geopolitical terms. You know, in the in the 19th century, 20th century, there was this Russian thrust for the warm waters of right. the Arabian Sea. Right. And look at the Bravo Ha, the British created about the Russian quest for the warm waters. And they started the fight not on the coast of Makran. They started the fight in Central Asia and in Afghanistan when they started playing the great game. Century, a century before, you know, the Russians could have any actual thought of reaching the warm waters of the Arabian Sea. That was the kind of, you know, uh, kind of, you don't let these things happen in your backyard. Yet, what has happened here? Pakistan used to rent out its territory initially to the United States. And now it has rented its territory out to China. China, yes. You yes. know, and we have the so-called China-Pakistan economic corridor. If you take a look at the map, and the alignment of this corridor, you know, if it was only meant for trade, it would have gone on the other side of the Indus to be safe from any war thrust, war time right. thrust by India. You know, this corridor takes two loops like this. One comes to the Punjab, one comes to Rajasthan. 
the main area where tank battles will take place in the next war with Pakistan. Right. What is China trying to do? China is trying to see that its tanks, China's army is mechanized now. Almost every formation is on tanks or wheels, right? So they cannot be applied through the Himalayan passes. They can operate in the plateau of Tibet. They can't come down the passes because of the steep terrain. So now they will come via Pakistan. You allow it to happen. Gilgit-Baltistan is whose territory? It is our territory. This road has been built over our territory. We have slept over it. We have allowed it to happen. Why? Why should we? The second factor is the port of Gwadar. China is, is now delicious. a player in the Indian Ocean region. Right. Do the Americans want it? Right. Do the Russians want it? You know, it can now pose a threat to the economic lifelines, the sea lanes of communications, the energy supply lines of India, Japan, Korea, South Korea, every other major Asian nation, we get our oil from the Middle East and Africa. So, and all this is vulnerable. If you base Chinese submarines at Gwadar, yeah, yeah. you have created a paradigm shift in the security architecture. See, we should have woken up much see earlier. The, the geopolitical significance of Baluchistan has not been adequately understood. Or, and we are the ones who have to do this job of educating other people. But we haven't done that. I would like to say that apart from the suffering of the people of Baluchistan, which in itself is a cause enough to try and help them for the rest of the world, especially a democracy like India to help them. But the fact of the matter is, you will be safeguarding your own interest. Correct. If you if you are able to see that the future of the people of, of Baluchistan is secure, right. and like you get access corridors to landlocked Central Asia, landlocked Afghanistan. But you raised a very important point. And that is the Trump administration. Firstly, it shows that the American leftist liberal media are hopelessly out of touch with ground reality. Right. And the Indians and are in, you know, this is actually the demise of the pseudo-liberal era. Era, worldwide. even worldwide. Even worldwide. Brexit right. did that, Brexit did that, Putin did that, everywhere. China doesn't have that kind of people anyway, Japan. So you're finding major countries are sort of throwing out, rejecting their pseudo-liberal left intellectuals and that whole that whole era is over that whole era is over globally there yes. is a uh, there is i would say a receding of globalization the so-called triumphal end of history right uh, of francis fukuyama right. i think he is history yeah he gone. is he, now it's history. his end it's his it's end, his end yes. of his history at least but let me let me say outright i as an indian military analyst strongly feel that what has happened in United States and the coming up, the triumph of Trump is a very good thing as far as India is concerned. We have to take advantage of it though. We we have to be able to leverage. Yes, we have to. See, this requires quick thinking because Trump is the kind of person that once he's announced, this is my policy, then he will be too uh, arrogant to change. That's so right. while they are still fluid, while they are figuring out new people. We have three months. We, uh, till, uh, January, till, till January. Till January. Yeah, so yeah. now is the time to really, mm -hmm. and I don't know who's doing what, but mm -hmm. this is the time that people like you should be deputed to go and put these things on the table. We, we, we must reach out to the people of the United States, to the new dispensation, right-wing nationalist dispensation, which are natural allies, I feel. We, are, we have had a right-wing nationalist revival, so has the United States. So I think it, there is a normal, natural synergy between the two democratic entities. At least common enemies. At least. You see, what unites you much more? It was always said that, you know, we share liberty, fraternity, equality, and shared ideals. But I'm afraid 
we were still at loggerheads we were on the wrong sides on the cold war you know but when you have common enemies rather than common ideals right the bonding is far stronger yes and his top two enemies keep talking about are china and islam it is it is precisely what threatens us correct it is precisely what threatens us right. you know for a very long time the chinese and the pakistanis have used the americans as a cash cow the chinese have a 366 billion dollar trade surplus right. they have taken away 5 million manufacturing jobs from the united states and trump doesn't like it one bit right. and we hope if he goes by his elect- election election time rhetoric that he will do something to change this that that uh, he will possibly impose penal tariffs on the chinese goods and the import of chinese hit the chinese economy when it is already reeling right if that happens well i think it will do the world a lot of good right. because we have an over aggressive over assertive china which says it is above international laws right you know this is precisely what had happened to the league of nations right you know they had ignored it with contempt the germany and italy and japan the rising powers of that time had ignored the 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 league of nations with contempt that is precisely what china is doing today in south china sea tomorrow it will do it to us if we don't wake up in time so they might even you see I, I, one scenario is chinese tanks and all another scenario is they will fund and weaponize pakistan to do the dirty work that is precisely what they are saying they will use because they are they need money they have enough militants in pakistan they keep funding them and keep giving them technology weapons and use pakistan as their hit squad you know pakistan has a rabid disease of extremism you know islamic fundamentalism to gone beyond the point of tip uh, the tipping point i mean it is it has become a rabid country and china is very happy playing that rabid country against us as its trump card right so we need donald trump now right to tackle this card and because donald trump said in unequivocal terms during his election he called pakistan the most dangerous country on in this world right and he said the the solution to this country the problem that it poses to the rest of the world lies with the indians right so i i we are very sure we must take him up yeah yeah, yeah. we must take him up See, on this uh, on this this is where you his. need this is where you need military thinking rather than the old fashion old school diplomats and absolutely right. because you see like i said 70% of american presidents have been former military their secretaries of defense their secretaries of state have been former military men all their top corporation boeing lockheed people migrate from the military and go to this so i so think where top it, people were were from uh, the military yeah military so so West they Point. think in West military Point is where they graduate people work in the military they feel military training gives them some really good credentials leadership good qualities leadership, and then they become fortune 500 they are, they are, they are a pool of leadership available to the nation right. in this country they are treated as their only good for security guard duties right right you know and that is why you have been trying to you know absolutely marginalize the military from strategic thinking strategic planning to your own discomfiture right and only when a war takes place is the military called center stage right, right. so i think it's about but but, but things are changing the good news is the things are now seriously on the mend so one of the india. very important uh, things in the indian narrative that has to change is a very strong military much stronger uh, you know money dosage of weapons whatever it takes to make the military strong and in indigenization of the weaponry in the next 10 years 
India is going to spend something like 250 billion dollars on modernizing its military. If we can speed that process up, you know, we get the best of the East and the West. Mm. The Russians are prepared to sell us their cutting-edge technology. They sell us nuclear submarines or they lease to us nuclear submarines. They are prepared to give us state-of-the-art fifth-generation fighters, S-400 Triumph missiles. The Americans sell us the C-17. They are prepared to give us the F-16 and whatever technology that we want. The French sell us the Rafale and therefore, we get the best of the East and the West and we definitely have a, a technological edge right now over the Chinese which we need to deepen to an extent that the Sino-Pakistan nexus, the Sino-Pakistan threat can be countered but we and need we allies. can take decisive action. We need allies like Japan for instance. Japan has a similar enemy. Japan has the same threat of China. Korea has the same threat of China. So there's we, people on the... We, we, we think so much alike. I'm amazed. Actually, <laughs> actually, China's neighbors are all... It's got a very... Uh, all the neighbors are anti-China. In the Trump dispensation has also given a warning signal to its old allies in Europe and Japan and South Korea that they'll have to do more to defend themselves. That he has even told the Japanese and the South Koreans to create their own nuclear deterrent. Correct. They don't count on us. Right. In such a scenario... Right. In such a scenario, yes. you know, which has the Japanese so clearly worried, right. one of the first foreign leaders to rush to the United States has been Shinzo Abe of Japan. Right. He's already met Donald Trump. Right. He's hit the ground running. Right. He's already met Donald Trump. So the fact is, this scenario makes it even more imperative right. for an Asian balance of power to be created against China. Right. An Asian balance of power in terms of Japan, India, Vietnam, South Korea, Possibly, if there is some more stiffening of the spine in the Philippines right. and Singapore and other countries. Yes. But we need to create an Asian-style NATO mm. to balance the power of a rising China because no single country, less possibly India, can hope to balance China all by itself. Right. We need to spread the Chinese military resources all along a great arc of Asia. That's we cannot allow them so to be focused against This kind of military alliance is very important and I hope some people are looking at that. We definitely are looking and we are already very much, you know, in a way towards a very special strategic relationship with the Japanese, with the Vietnamese. The magazine that I edit, incidentally, Indian Military Review, monthly magazine, has one senior research fellow from Japan one senior research fellow from Vietnam, one senior research fellow from South Korea. Excellent. You know, so we are already on that, not only at the government to government level, but people to people contact. You see, and Koreans, there are historical ties. Koreans tell me that this whole division between North and South Korea is sort of like East-West Germany That's and it's kept alive by China absolutely. because if the Koreans unified, it would be a threat to China. It would, it would, be, it would be a major a, power on major power. Right China, there. China's door. Right. right. And the, so this is a game we have to play. This kind of a thing. This is precisely what it would be. And you know, because China must understand, it cannot arm Pakistan. China, the entire Pakistani nuclear weapon program has got a made in China stamp. Right. China gave to Pakistan the blueprint of the nuclear bomb. It gave to Pakistan uranium for the first four bombs. It tested the first Pakistani bomb in Lopnor in Xinjiang. Then it gave to them M9, M11 missiles. And when the Americans imposed sanctions, they put AQ Khan in touch with the North Koreans and they paid for the Pakistani purchase of the Nodong and Taipodong long-range missiles. No other country in the world, repeat, no other country in the world, Rajiv, has done so much 
to nuclear arm or proliferate another country than China with Pakistan. Yes. The United States hasn't done it with Great Britain. Right. Great Britain had to do its own heavy lifting as far as its nuclear program was concerned. Even to Israel, Israel developed their own. Uh, Israel had to develop its own. Right. This is the only case of somebody See, so, deliberately so arming a nation state. Pakistan is sort of sold out like a prostitute to China. To the Chinese. And they do all the, whatever it takes. They have rented themselves out. They have no narrative of history of their own because right. they don't want to admit that they're Indians That's who right. got Islamized. That's right. They, they don't want to do that. That. They disown because their origins. They yeah. disown their origins because then, then the question would be why did they? Why, did, why are you disobeying? Why are you uh, betraying your own heritage? That yes. kind of thing. And they, nor can they claim they are from the Middle East because the Arabs don't think they are equal. Mm. Arabs think you're, you're Muslim, but you're not equal. You're Alaf and Ashraf. Af Alaf. Ashraf are the highborn. Yeah. These Alaf, they are the lowborn. Yes, they are the lowborn. No, who it, tried identify yeah. themselves and, and with I, the? I had a big fight recently with a Pakistani Muslim <laughs> in the Indian circle, where who said we don't have a caste system in Islam oh, and we have God. any uh, in Hinduism. Uh, uh, and I gave him a long lecture. Uh, it's very interesting that all my friends who are Hindu Indians were very nervous. You know what he is saying. Mm -hmm. So I had to give them a lot of evidence, a lot of stuff to convince our own people that actually Pakistan and Islam have a very deep caste system. They have this complex that they are not Arabs. They are trying to Arabize this whole language business. Right, they want right. to, the, the, the Turkish, Persian and Arabs are considered superior to the people of the Indian subcontinent. Absolutely. And this business of this whole, Pakistan is trying to be proving itself to the Arab, to the Islamic world that they are nuclear, therefore they bring something to the table and therefore they have a right to be uh, considered with respect. With the Ashraf. Ashraf. To be counted as the Ashraf. To be as counted as the, the Ashraf. Alaf. We are bringing uh, something to the table. We are, we are the nuclear, right. nuclear power of that's the Islam. Right. So they have deep complexes. Yeah. Very deep. And people of that kind can be very dangerous. They're up for sale. So it's China can easily buy them and use them. I mean, it would not be a, a big deal for China to sort of cut some deal where Pakistan does the fighting. You see, the, the Pakistanis have almost slapped the United States in the face. You know, they were anticipating that just like the last time around, they would be dumped like, you know, a used condom after the Americans had finished with their major fighting, heavy lifting in the Afghan war. What has happened is that the Pakistanis have now tried to dump the Americans. They have tried to tell the Americans, you are a has-been power, that they have written the Americans off, I would think prematurely. Yes. I would think rather prematurely. Right. And they will have to pay a price for it. Yeah. They have gone totally into the Chinese camp in the new emerging park scenario, the, the kind of a bipolar equation that you are seeing, which China is trying to create between itself and the United States. Pakistan has become a camp follower and an ally. It has dumped the United States contemptuously after ripping it off 31 billion dollars and keeping Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad, 800 meters from the Pakistan Military Academy, Kakul. And when he was discovered and shot and killed by the American SEALs, they had the chutzpah to say, but we never knew he was here. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is the way this country lies through its teeth tries to hoodwink the world and I'm amazed that the Americans have let them take it for a ride for so long. 3,000 American soldiers, Rajiv, have been killed because of the proxies sent in by Pakistan. They have killed 3,000 American soldiers. The blood of 3,000 American soldiers is on the hand. The United States knows it. Till recently they were keeping quiet because of those compulsions. May I tell the Pakistanis those compulsions are over. We understand and I think Donald Trump got it absolutely right when he said, either the way to sort out Pakistan is to let the Indians lose.
I hope he not, lives not, up. Not let the Indians lose, but on on Pakistan. Turn them loose. <laughs> turn them loose yeah, yeah, on yeah. Pakistan. You know, yeah. because this country has been suffering patiently for thirty years, and and the soul here is crying out for catharsis, and that's what I have been telling the present government. The country needs a catharsis. I mean, people are so fed up that they say to hell with a nuclear war. If it has to come to that, the country is looking for a Mahabharat. Yes, sir. let me be I would, very blunt. I would like to see you in a position where some of these ideas are moved forward. I really would like <laughs> to see that. And I want to thank you thank for you. a wonderful. Thank you, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we've talked privately so many times. Uh, you know, for many many years. And I just wanted my uh, the followers on Facebook and other places to get the benefit of. Most of them know you. You're a famous person, and we all admire you. We admire your courage, uh, your honesty, your integrity. To just say it like it is. Thank you. I'm I'm deeply honored. I'm deeply honored that you considered me worthy of this exchange of views. I found it so refreshing. <laughs> you know, and we we'll do more, and we will do more because uh, there are synergies that I didn't know existed. Yes. Because generally the military mind thinks so differently from the civilian mind. But I'm so so delighted to see that we are in synchrony on most of the yes. things that threaten that threaten our nation within and without. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Do write to us if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback. on infinity foundation podcast at gmail.com this is your host karishma saying bye bye for today